Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We have a special guest coming in from Kansas City, former military member, and for six years, the last several years, been deep diving into real estate, has a team of three, construction, operations, and then uh, raising capital for his syndications, raised a little over 20 million at this point, which is impressive and really focuses more in the Midwest section, 41 units, 144 units, Uh, the list goes on and has some learning curves along the way as well that we're going to be sharing with you guys today that you will not want to make a mistake on. You know, anybody not want to lose a couple hundred thousand? This is a great episode to tune in, really listen. We'll, We'll fill you in in just a little bit, but without further ado, what's up, Justin? How are you? And I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I love what you do. And hopefully we can help some people avoid some six-figure mistakes and make a lot of money along the way. Let's go. Yeah. So anybody out there that doesn't know exactly your story, who you are, where you're from, what you're up to, do you mind just sharing that 30,000 foot view? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I'm, I'm actually from California, which is where you're at right now. I sort of outgrew that California lifestyle, bounced around to a few states. But really, real estate has been in my blood as a profession since I was 17. So when I was 17, I got my very first internship at a commercial real estate office and really, really loved what I did. I mean, I, I, I love the industry. I just didn't love what I did. I did a lot of data entry. It was kind of painstaking. And so I realized that I loved hearing like what the brokers were doing, Uh, all the big players in the space. So right across from my cubicle, there was the biggest player in our office. And he was always wheeling and dealing. He was so good at talking to people. Every time he closed a deal, like everybody knew, you know, so I fell in love with that part of the industry. And so when I was 18, I got my real estate license and I pursued sales, did that for a couple of years, did really well, but really realized that I was transactionally rich. I was constantly chasing the next deal, constantly chasing the next commission. And that's a fun ride, but I kind of felt that entrepreneurial creep coming up on me. I felt a toll on my, I wasn't making time for the gym. I felt a toll on my personal relationships, on my mental health. And so, you know, I was very, very rich financially, but I was losing in every other aspect of my life. So that's when I decided I want to be an owner. I wanted to hop into the owner space. I helped a lot of owners buy and sell their properties. You know, while I was there working, I was giving them calls and they'd call me back, oh, I'm in Japan or oh, I'm in, I'm in Costa Rica. I'm in the Cayman Islands right now. And they're always traveling and having fun. And, and I was always here working. So, you know, I wanted to step on that side of the table and really dove into multifamily about five years ago and haven't looked back, man. It's been an awesome journey since. I love it. Yeah, it's funny. You know, did you have any friends, family members that were doing real estate at the time? Was there any inspiration around that? No, I mean, actually kind of the opposite. My my mother specifically, who I grew up with, really, really is risk averse to anything. And terrified. She, yeah, terrified of anything. She would rather put her money in some in a CD and make 4%. Like she's okay with that. She understands, you know, with inflation. It's a nail. For the longest money. time, it was like 2%, maybe, yeah. maybe if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But but that's her style. And I and I respect sure. that she knows herself. 
Cause she said, even if it was going really well, I would always have in the back of my mind that, you know, something's going to happen. And, and, you know, as I started to get educated in the industry, I realized the chances of those different risks and how to mitigate risk. But, you know, she was never comfortable with this. So growing up, I was actually told the opposite. Don't ever get into real estate. It's very risky. My very distant cousin as well had a rental property and pissed the tenant off. Tenant actually dumped concrete down the drains um, of his property. And so like the only real estate experience that my family had was like this horrible tenant that just totally ruined the property. So, you know, it was really word of mouth to a certain degree, right? right? Like your mom didn't ever have an investment property, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, this person, our family did. And so ever since then, it, it was everybody saying, oh, don't do that. You know, you're going to get your properties ruined. And so it took a lot of, you know, going against the grain, which is kind of in my style anyways. I kind of did a lot of things opposite than what my parents said. Most entrepreneurs, kind of right? Opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So kind of the opposite. It's not that I just didn't have anybody in my family that was real estate. They were like super against it, thought it would ruin everything. So no, pretty interesting. I just, I just kind of made my own path with it. Yeah. And then you mentioned kind of being cash rich for short certain periods of time of when you're or transactional rich, right? So yeah. a lot of sales guys, they get it, like especially sharks as a sales guy, they like chase the dollar, they get a bunch of money and then they live like a rock star later on. Just, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying that was you, but you it know, was. some people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys that are really good at sales, the typical saying behind that is like, that's kind of the lifestyle that they live. And then it gets them very hungry to get back to sales after they blow 40 grand the weekend in Vegas, you know, their commissions that whole week. So yeah, you get back to work and you bust your ass again, and and so that's a budgeting type of thing. That's a understanding finances and money going out, money coming in, and people get motivated in in different ways. So it's not necessarily the worst thing, but it's good to identify, right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I was a sales guy, I've been in sales, really even now. I consider I'm part of the camp of people that thinks everybody's in sales. I sure. just think everybody in sales, you're just in different degrees of knowledge of it, or you're in different degrees of being conscious that you're in a sales situation. So yeah. I have a spot in my heart for salespeople. A lot of our investors are salespeople because again, they're transactionally rich, but they know, hey, I got to put this money, make these commissions work for me. So in the future, I can either let off the gas because a lot of high-performing salespeople, not uncommon to work 60, 70 plus hours a week. And yep. sometimes they even like that. You know, they like yeah. that feeling of chasing the deals. But in the back of their minds, just like me, you know, I knew I couldn't sustain that for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. But I was okay doing it for the time. So yeah, I have a, a place in my heart for salespeople of all shapes and sizes and, and all over the world because they, they really do live a different life. It's different when you eat what you kill and you really have to take your own fate into your into your own hands. Yeah. Instead of having it like on a silver platter, some sales guys are like that as well, which you yeah. got to be careful. But yeah, I think that's brilliant. And just like you mentioned, like every single person, whether you you love sales, hate sales, you're doing sales every single day to be able to get, you know, your significant other, your new, you know, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, husband, yeah. whatever, like you had to sell them on you to go yeah. out, right? Like you, you <laughs> have agree. to yeah. every single situation, whether you realize it or not, there's some form of sales that gets people excited wants to hear more and, you know, yeah. just getting your day-to-day -day achievements kind of, you know, yeah. fulfilled on both sides. I think so. I couldn't agree more. And also, you know, nowadays with these generations, I think sales is going to be more of almost a mandatory facet of their life because sure. look at the, the economics right now that we live in, where 30 years ago, if you made $50,000 in today's money, that's the equivalent to about $104,000. 
So the salaries back then were okay. You would do fine, but not many people now are graduating college and, and making you know six figures right out of the gate. So I think a lot of people now are realizing, hey, I have to take my own fate in my hands. I have to be some kind, if I ever want to make it out of this rat race or, or make it in any decent amount of time, I have to have a, a role where I can control my destiny. And again, that, that's why I love the salespeople that we work with as well, because it's really betting on themselves at that point. Yeah. Yeah. The nine to five, being an entrepreneur is definitely 100% not for everybody by all means. With that being said, the nine to five role, it can be taxing. It can be, it can be just cutting it very close. So it's very, it's crucial to find that fine balance and also just realize like how bad do you truly want just a little bit of extra freedom. That's why I always recommend everybody. Like I don't, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you're up to, color, like black, white, orange, Asian, whatever, like all type, like you should definitely focus on getting just one to three properties, ideally yeah. residential multifamily or something that you can get yeah. a couple extra thousand per month in. I think it's literally the saving grace in the long period of time that as long as you budget it and, and handle your finances right, it will suit you so freaking well. It's really mandatory to have like, that's your social security. Like that's your pension. That, yeah. That's your backup plan in so many ways. I mean, that that to me has to be plan A. I mean, look what's happening in France yeah. right now, where essentially Correct. they're out of, what they're telling you is they're out of money. And that's what yep. rioting. And to think that that won't happen here, or we haven't exhibited signs of us running out of social security here is yeah. all blissful ignorance. Yeah. And I just oh, it don't will. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Unless and, they come up with something, unless they bail out them. Right, and God right. knows like how many more trillions were, I think we're at like 33 or 31 trillion in yeah. debt right now. I mean, who cares, right? Just throw it on the, the Fez Amex. It doesn't matter yeah, at yeah. this point, but you know, whatever program they come up with is going to have unintended consequences. Yeah. So whether it's it's super high inflation and now, okay, now you might get a couple thousand more bucks, but would, would you get a cheeseburger with that in 30 years? You know, I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, when you have an asset that the government cannot just print and cannot just create more of out of thin air, it's real, it's tangible. You know, that's why some people love gold and silver, like real gold and silver bars, because they can't just print those things out. So, yes, I think anybody who really pays attention to what's going on in the financial markets, to what's going on, to what's our trajectory for this generation's retirement, yeah. I mean, it'll scare the hell out of you into doing whatever it takes to get yourself some property, to get yourself some alternative investments, to get you some different streams so that you're not just sitting there hoping that the government does something to help you out. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, there's crazy things going on in the market right now with so many other countries not trading with American dollars anymore. And just sure. yeah. that's terrifying and scary. So God yeah. knows with where our dollar will be valued at very soon, mm-hmm. sooner than later. Yeah. So talk to me. As far as real estate goes, what are you guys up to? Like, what what is the bread and butter? Are you guys doing the birth strategy, big only multifamily? What does it look like? Yeah, so we've only done multifamily. The smallest property in our portfolio right now is forty one units, okay. and that's in the syndication model. So sure. for anybody very high level syndication, really bringing on other investors in a passive form to buy larger properties, and so it's at some point we have to have a certain size to make it worth it because we're not going to bring on investors to buy a you know two hundred thousand dollar home, right? It's just not enough meat on that bone to make it worthwhile. Yeah. So we do syndicate larger multifamily. To this point, it's been all market rate multifamily, just straight multifamily uh, apartment buildings specifically. And you know, over the past about year and a half. 
We've just seen deals be a little bit harder to come by without sacrificing your underwriting standards, right? Like oh, yeah. people flooded this market, especially when COVID happened and people were looking and saying, wow, why is multifamily actually hitting record numbers? Okay, let's go put our money there. Just inflated the hell out of this asset class. So I think multifamily just needs a little bit of time to cool off, at least for us to see the kind of volume of deals that, that we we expect and like to do. So we're getting a little bit more creative. We're partnering with a lot of other operators and different things like in strip malls or in retail centers. Um, short-term rentals right now are absolutely crushing it. So we're raising for a short-term rental fund. It'll probably be about a $50 million fund right now this year. So we're getting a little bit more creative, but yeah, our bread and butter up to this point has been apartment buildings. Um, and now we're pushing into some short-term rentals, mid-term rentals, and then probably some, probably some deeper commercial assets as well. Do you believe that with interest rates going up and so forth, I know they're cooling off a little bit right now with hopes to, to sure. keep going lower, but you know, I know even after COVID last year with interest rates going up, it, it started becoming a lot more difficult. Deals just weren't making sense in underwriting anymore. Um, yeah. And during COVID, you know, people were flipping them left and right because they did literally nothing or, or yeah. they, you know, they put a little coat of paint on and they still left so much meat on the bone for people to constantly get in. They would do the next thing, you know, they changed yep. the lights and then yeah. boom, <laughs> flip it again. Value uh, added, you know, that's what it yeah. takes then keep on doubling up their money. But do you still have faith and believe that within the market and where we're currently heading, potentially, mm -hmm. nobody's got that crystal ball, but do you think you know the multifamily space is still a significant, like low risk, still great opportunity to jump into? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. So what I've been telling you and all of our investors is probably over the next, I, I think two years, I've read some studies that'll take us about two years to sort of you know normalize. I think you'll still see deals, but we'll see significantly fewer. Like this year, our goal is to do six more deals. And when we reevaluated back in January, but this may even happen right after Christmas, we were like thinking of our annual goals. And, um, you know, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to push that. You know, I'm happy if we do one really good multifamily deal this year, because people who don't have to sell will not. And the people who do have to sell, I think there'll be more distress in that market. So there's a lot of distressed loans coming due over the next two years. I mean, we're seeing big, big players fall, you know, in Houston, 3,200 units just got foreclosed on $290 million loan that's got hiked up in interest rates. They got foreclosed on. So we'll start to see that distress still. So deals will, will come fewer and further between, but I actually think there'll be better deals. So yeah. I do think, and part of the reason why multifamily is so congested and the yields just kind of got pulled out of it was because of the safety. They saw a big safety blanket when multifamily performed so well in COVID, and it's always performed really well. And the fundamentals yeah. make a lot of sense. If you look at units in the construction in the pipeline versus population migration in some areas, those numbers are so flip flopped that you know government's going to have to start building a lot of property really, really fast to catch up. But the fundamentals make a lot of sense, and most people see it as a safer investment. And I think part of that is because they understand it. Right. Almost everybody has at some point lived in an apartment. You get it. People need a place to live. I have a place to live. You kind of understand that versus fewer people might understand a co-working space, a flex space, you know, a retail shopping center. They may just not get that portion of, of life that exists, but everybody gets apartment living. So yeah, I think it's still going to be a great asset class. You know, for us, we're kind of pencils down on we're still underwriting deals, but we're not seeing anything really come close to our expectations. And I think that'll be the, the same for probably the next year or two years. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you know, this big apartment complex and, and all these units that is 
potentially going through foreclosure right now in Texas. And I believe that going to potentially be a ripple effect. And the reason behind this is that a lot of multifamily, it all, it all goes on adjustable type of rates where five, seven, seven year turns. So therefore, when they bought several years ago, and it made sense when they're doing very well, and they didn't sell it, you know, in the last couple of years, because there's still money to be made, and they're holding yeah. out on it. Yeah. Now, when the interest rates are up, it totally jacks up so many things for the numbers yeah. don't make sense anymore. And then yeah. what are they going to do? Also during COVID, you know, I'm sure there was still a decent amount of, you know, forbearance and, and overall people not paying rent and, yeah. you know, evictions starting to take place, which that will mess up your numbers as well and occupancy. So mm-hmm. all these factors really start putting a spin of hurt in so many different ways. Yeah. And then what are you going to do? It has to go to foreclosure and then what, you know? So, right. yeah. And I agree. And so a lot of those, you know, where people are getting hit, with the debt markets really. So debt is going to be the number one killer of, of your deals for most mm-hmm. asset classes, if not all. So if you're a passive investor, the number one thing you should look for is your operator, like who your sponsor is. And a sure. very, very close number two is going to be that debt. So is it fixed or is it floating? If it's floating, did you buy a cap on it? Because what happened in, in the, the Texas foreclosures, their rate went from 3.4 to yeah. 8%. Mm-hmm. $290 million loan. I mean, it more than doubled their monthly payment. So, and so anybody out there that doesn't understand that, do you mind just breaking it down and kind of try to simplify it for people yeah. to understand this stuff? And I kind of want to go back just for anybody that's not like caught up on, on syndications and understanding yeah. that aspect as well. Yeah, let's do it. So let's back up to the Houston deal. So 3,200 units, $290 million loan. And what happened was when they purchased the property, their loan was floating at uh, 3.4%. What that meant is when they signed the docs, they were paying 3.4. But what they did not do was purchase a rate cap. And a rate cap does exactly what the name says. It says, hey, we're going to put a cap. Maybe the cap is 5%. Maybe it's 6%. It would not have been 8 Eight is very high, but at the same, and, you know, we knew rates would rise, but even we didn't anticipate rates would rise that quickly. I don't sure. think anybody really did. So, you know, when they were signing the docs, they probably felt really good about, hey, three, four, this is a killer yeah. rate. During the time, they're like, look, the worst case scenario would have to happen of getting right. a spike twice the exactly. highest in history. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's exactly what happened. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, it's just different thought processes, right? It's, sure. You know, they played their game. They played yep. the risk game and, and that's what it is. Um, yep. So you know, they, they signed the loan. Their first monthly payment went out at 3.4%. And you know, as the Fed started hiking these rates, they started getting more and more and more. And eventually, once it gets up to 8%, I mean, you're talking about, I think it's about a two and a half times increase in your monthly payment, just in your interest expenses. Yeah. And so they, they went to foreclosure and their investors are going to lose everything, 100% yep. of the investment. And so, and let me stop you there because I want to talk about who's really getting on the hook for that, not just investors, but sponsor and so forth. But even before that, when it comes down to, you know, somebody listening might ask like, okay, well, why wouldn't you put a cap on it just to protect your bets behind it? Well, it's a risk factor and it's also an underwriting factor because to be able to put that cap on there, there's fees behind it, right? So that could cost, it depends on how big the project is, but these lenders don't have a problem putting a couple percentage points behind it to give that safety net. And that yeah. safety net is something that you're betting on. Okay, should I yeah. save this this couple percentage of the whole, you know, save a lot of money here? Exactly. exactly. Or should I put that insurance plan in basically? Yeah. 
I mean, it's almost exactly like insurance, right? You can yep. pick the the thousand dollar policy, the thousand dollar payment, or the ten thousand dollar payment. Yeah, which you want to play? They picked the low no payment, right? And sure. Again, I'm not knocking them at all. Yeah, this we a lot of a lot of people play. have, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is just the game that we play, and so we to to purchase a rate cap. There's fees to it, so there's a monetary reason. And the more money you put up into the loan, the less your returns look, right? So, yes. so they wanted to boost their returns a little bit more, and depending make it look good on- for their investors. But when you're getting a higher ROI or rate of return, then it's like there's more risk behind that. So that's why you sure. gotta, you know, the yeah. money management. Yeah, exactly. And and then a lot of times too is it might change the terms of the loan, right? Sure. Because the banks essentially they're pricing risk. Yep. If you don't buy a rate cap, they're pretty okay with that because that means their upside potential is unlimitedly high. If yep. the rate were 10, the Fed kept going, they could charge a 10. So if you put a cap on them, you're almost limiting their ability to make money off you. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're just going to price different things. Maybe they'll include more fees. Maybe they'll give you a less extension option. You know, they're going to play with it in their model and figure something out. Now with that instance, if the market continued going as it was going, they would have had the best case scenario. They would have had the super low rate. They would have saved a couple of points, which is going to be a couple hundred thousands of dollars. And they had a lot of leverage. They had 80% leverage on the deal. So they took, they only put down 20%. So all of those things, when the market was going really well, man, if they were just maybe a year before, they would have crushed it on that deal. They would have yeah. And their investment, yeah. you guys are the smartest people I've ever met. This is so fantastic. So easy. Market timing just took them out. Yeah, it's 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 really like playing for an illustration. It's playing musical chairs with real estate. And when the market finally takes the okay, last year during late spring, early summer, once that halt hits there, interest rates start coming up, the fear starts locking in. It's a different market. And yeah. now they realize like, oh shoot, we should have had that protection. We should have paid the couple hundred thousand extra, yeah. got different terms, different years and stuff like that and so forth. But we would have had that protection. It would have brought down our investors' return. So not look as sexy when everybody else is promoting the 20 something percent. Yeah. Yeah. This would have been closer to 14 or you know 12 to 14. That's different. It doesn't yeah. look as sexy, but... Now, you know, people are going to to pay for that. So talk to me about who's really paying for this. Obviously, the investors. And yeah. and I want you to go over like a syndication model for people to understand. But um, I want to hear about the sponsor too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's 10,000 foot view the syndication model. So there's going to be essentially two parts to break down as simply as possible. An active side of the active investors, which we'll call the sponsors. They're called yeah. sponsors, the general partnerships, you know, there's a bunch of words for them. We'll call them the sponsors. And then there's the limited partnership or the passive investors. So let's say, you know, if I'm the sponsor, you know, Brandon, and, and you're an investor, you may not be a real estate guy. Maybe you're a high performing sales guy, you're a consultant, doctor, whatever it is. But all you know is that real estate is good investment, but I don't know where to find deals. I don't know how to underwrite them. I don't know how to operate them. I don't even want to find out. I just want to do my own thing. Yeah. So there's groups like us who will say, hey, well, Brandon, if, if you want to be involved in real estate, but don't want to do the work, we'll do the work. You provide the cash and we'll give you a percentage of the deal in exchange for it. And then most good sponsors, they're going to invest in the deal as well. They're going to put up money. So it's not like we're putting up $0, but we're doing the work. It's almost sweat equity versus real equity, right? Sure. So what happens is the syndication will pull together a bunch of investors. So let's say we have to raise, in one of our most recent raises, we were purchasing a $10 million property. 
25% down payment plus about 5% closing costs, that's 3 million bucks. So instead of writing a $3 million check ourselves, we went to our investors and said, hey, investors, if you want to invest, our minimum was $50,000 for that deal. $50,000 at a time, you know, you'll get a piece of equity until we raised all 3 million bucks. So there could be a couple or even dozens or hundreds of investors in these syndications. So, and they're all passive. So they're 100% passive. They give you a sponsor their money and they read quarterly or monthly reports every month to see how the property is doing and they get distributions. So it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful structure if you're able to really vet your sponsors out well, vet the deals, vet the debt well, it can work out extremely well because you're a 100% passive investor. You're not just owning properties. You don't have to deal with any calls. There's no commitment to your time. So it's a, it's a great marriage of skills, will, and, and money. And then when it comes down to the different types of syndications, you know, I, I know the SEC has certain guidelines yeah. and requirements for, yeah. for you guys to comply with. So what, what does that look like? Yeah. So there's different structures, right? Again, it, it's the SEC requirements. So some of the structures will require everybody investing to be what's called an accredited investor. Accredited investor means you have a net worth of a million bucks, or you make $200,000 a year single over the past two years, or $300,000 a year married. And so, so you need to show proof of this with your accountant right. or a lawyer. Right. Yes. Yeah, so you'll you'll either submit W-2s or, or you'll have your CPA or a lawyer sign off and say, hey, I'm not willing to say how much the figure is, but this person qualifies, they'll sign off on it. Um, it's not, it's not stated income here, guys. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's different ways that you can do it, but you do have to prove it. Now, yeah. you know, the SEC, the way they see that is they're essentially protecting people from being marketed to. And that's why you know, this model is so great, but maybe why you don't hear it being marketed as often yeah. because you can only market it if you have that type of offering where you have to have everybody be accredited. Now, and, and a majority of Americans don't have that. I just learned this actually a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of eye-opening to me, but anybody making over 250 or 300,000 per year yeah. is actually in the 1% group top, which is really eye-opening. I was like, wow, yeah. that's incredible. But it's small. It's small. It's small. Yeah. And a millionaire. I mean, how many people are, and it doesn't include primary residence. So that's a big yeah. one. A lot of people yeah. might be millionaires, but they're in their home. You know, that doesn't really, you don't have a million bucks. Yeah. So yeah. So there's qualifications. Now that is the SEC's attempt to say, Hey, I don't want you going and telling a teacher that you got to invest in this, we'll double your money. And it's their last, you know, 25 grand or something like that, which I don't really agree with. It's almost like diversifying. They want to make sure that you're not going all in, putting all your eggs right. in one basket and that right. you can afford to take a loss because this is an investment. This is a true investment right. that you could lose everything. Right. And, you know, whether you as a listener agree with that or not, you know, personally, I think it's kind of gatekeeping phenomenal investments that, that's just me because I, I think you don't have to have those qualifications to be very well educated in this field, especially nowadays when education is essentially free and everywhere. That but, brings up a second type of syndication right. where when right. you're an educated, right. sophisticated, right? Right. So you can be sophisticated where you don't have to meet the qualifications for accredited. Now, that doesn't really check the box. If we're having an accredited offering, you have to be accredited. There's no way around it. But yep. you can also have offerings that or do not force investors to be accredited. And what is that one called? What kind of syndication model? So that's a 506B, 
which, so I always think of it as 506C is when they have to be accredited because there's two C's and accredited versus yep. 506B is just one step below that. Kind of like a B plus in school. Think of it like right, that, exactly. guys. Good, you know, good enough. We'll take it. Yeah, good enough. Yeah. yeah. So what that means is the requirement is you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor. So Brandon, if you were not an accredited investor and you didn't meet those criteria, but you wanted to get involved in real estate before we met each other today, you wouldn't have been able to invest with me. Wouldn't have been able to offer it. Wouldn't even be able to take your money. But now that we've had this conversation, I say, yes, Brandon's actually in friends and family with me. He's very yep. sophisticated in real estate. Okay. Now he can invest in, in me. So that's why a lot of times you'll hear, or if you go to our website, a lot of times there's not an option to just invest. You can't just give us your money. You have to book have the call. conversation. Yep. Right. And so I have to be able to say, Hey, you know, me and Jane Smith spoke on this day. That's yep. when we met. Then she became sophisticated in my eyes. And now I'm able to, to help have her in our offerings. So yep. a little nuances there that you just, you have to do. And it's not that the sponsors want you out or they don't want to talk to you. It's that, you know, we have to meet certain requirements. It's the legal requirements behind that. Not just for your lawyer to make him happy because of yeah. course they're going to be freaking out the whole time. Yeah. But it's also simply for the SEC requirements. And that is just a government backed agency that is protecting the certain regulations when it comes down to investing. So exactly. very important. Yeah, that was great, great understanding behind it explanation. Talk to me about personally guaranteeing because there's always somebody that has to write for, you know, sign on the dotted line for yeah. these big boy loans. And typically yeah. they're not even putting in much money at all. Sometimes just because they have money in the bank, they get to be yeah. that individual. What is that called? Yeah. How are they doing it? And for that particular situation in Texas that, you know, that company yeah. is going down, what does that look like for them? Yeah, so that's another great benefit of, of the syndication model is because most people will not qualify even for a commercial loan. Even sure. if you have the money of, of you know in a residential sense, like the money equivalent in the commercial purchase, you have to have certain experience. Yep. So in our role, we call that a key principal or a KP, which is yep. going to be who is actually signing on the loan saying, hey, me as Justin Moy, I have the net worth, the liquidity, the experience to manage an asset like this. So Mr. Banker, your, your money is safe with me. And if it goes wrong, here's what I'm willing to do to make it right, whether it's put up my own assets, whether it's put up just the property, you know, whatever that looks like. And that's a really big part of what you want to ask as well when you're investing and you're a passive investor. Hey, who signed on this loan? Who signed on and what are the terms? Because again, it's, it's almost like, hey, what's your skin in the game? Because if you sign on that loan, that's your ass. And so you're asking, yeah, you're gonna do everything in your power to make sure that that's going well and that's going right. And a because lot of times, th this bank is gonna take ever so this company yeah. over here, I'm curious who signed for it and what who they yeah. are and what they're gonna potentially lose because that's yeah. going to be. I mean, they really have to put up collateral. They have to put up their yeah. what they have. Yeah, and so I don't. So you can have what's called a non-recourse loan where they don't come after your personal assets. Sure, they just, they, for a certain time frame, property. I very, very, very strongly hope that that's the kind of loan that they had. Otherwise, yeah, you're on the hook for everything. And what I actually just learned this morning was you can actually experience what's called a phantom gain if you get a property foreclosed on, which I, I actually did not know that before, where essentially if you are not on the hook for the loan, let's say the loan amount is 10 million bucks, but the property is only worth 8 million bucks. Well, there's a $2 million what the IRS is going to consider a wiped out debt. 
actually a phantom gain. So you could actually have additional tax liability. And I don't know, again, I just, I just read an article about it this morning. So I'm not the expert on it. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but that's the kind of the 10,000 foot view. And I was like, wow, so they could be on the hook for actually more if their debt got wiped out as a phantom gain. We love phantom loss in this space. Yeah, yeah. Real money, tax, but paper loss. Yeah, yeah. you'll yeah, lower for protection and, and, and tax exactly. advantages. Yes, yeah, but, but I, I guess I didn't think about that. We could go the other way where you have a phantom yeah. gain where you didn't really gain money, but you're on the hook for something from a tax perspective. So, you know, I don't know how their debt was structured. I don't know what they're going to be on the hook for, but somebody signed on that line and somebody will will have a hard time getting loans in the future and might have to be paying for this, you know, the rest of their professional lives. Yeah. Yeah. And that's tough. That's really, really tough. So we got to pray for that man right now, whoever that is, man or woman. But okay. So talk to me, what does it look like? What are you guys focusing on right now? I know you said that you're you're looking for that one deal, you know, per year. How, yeah. how are you guys going about getting your leads? Yeah. So we do do some direct to owner marketing. We have also good networks in the area that we that we operate in and we get deals from brokers. So we have great yeah. relationships with brokers who we essentially outsource that responsibility to. And right now, you know, we're really focused on we are partnering with a company who's running an Airbnb fund. So they absolutely crushed it last year. That company is called TechFest. So they're vertically integrated Airbnb operator and we're raising for their funds. So this year it'll be about $50 million and about 100, probably 120 properties in the fund. Um, and they absolutely crushed it last year. So we got really excited to partner with them. So that is gonna be a big focus for us this year. And then also we're continuing to look at acquisitions in the multifamily space. But you know, again, we're not holding out for it because I think it, it, you're gonna have to continue to be patient in this game, and especially in the, the standard market multifamily space. I think it'll take a little bit of time to calm down. Well, actually, let's. I forgot to mention this, but we we got to talk about the learning curve, brother. I've, yeah, I almost I almost overpassed it. We got to talk about this. We got yeah. down a rabbit hole of, of talking about yeah. some good stuff Texas. here. But yep. yeah, talk to me about you know the learning curve that you went through, you know, yeah. and how you would do it differently moving forward. Because I think a lot of listeners are going to be really able to learn from this and pray that they don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, yeah, I think this is. One of the most important lessons that I've learned and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about talking to passive real estate investors. I mean, I have even my podcast, Passive Real Estate Strategies, because I just want to talk to people about what the passive strategies are, because what happened with us is we thought real estate was a passive investment. We thought, you know, we heard the stories, hey, buy it wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah. And now I like to tell people, you know, owning real estate is not passive, but investing in real estate is, you know, we were owning real estate. Yeah. We thought we would buy the property, hire the manager, the manager would do all the work, the contractor would do all the construction, you know, we'd make all this money. So we purchased this property and we found a contractor, we found a manager, and what was even better, at least to us at the time, was it was the same company. So we thought, wow, that's so great. They're going to manage it and do the construction for us. You know, this, this is a phenomenal, what an easy deal for us. And so we were going through our construction draws. And we have whole teams that we do construction. So we are very familiar with the draw process, with contracting, with materials. And, you know, we were inspecting their work. We were visiting on site. And essentially what we started noticing was we were getting told numbers that just didn't add up. Hey, these units are available right now. Then we would say, okay, well, where are the leases for them? Oh, the leases are coming. You know, we just had a couple of people sign in today. Okay, well, can we see those? And then we would hear nothing for weeks and weeks and weeks. Then I said, they would say, oh, good news. You know, we got another applicant today. I was okay, can I see the paperwork they filled out? Can you send me the lease agreement? And they go, well, you know, we'll send you the lease agreement when they move in. 
you know, just just all these sorts of things that just red flag, right? Red flag after red flag. And the reason why we didn't fire them sooner was actually because there was a lot of pending pending items in the construction biz that we had already paid for. And so we didn't want them to walk off the site. We'd already paid these things. They essentially walk off with their money. But we knew that something was going on. And we inspected the properties ourselves. And once we got another contractor in there, once we fired ours, you know, we started going beneath the surface, like nothing was really done. The cabinets were there. They looked nice. The paint was good. But the electrical permits outright lied about getting the permitting done. The city said, no, like none of these units have been inspected. Even the people who did move in, they, they need to move out because these are not livable units. They never got inspected from us. Um, and we were told that they did. And when I pulled up those files and we looked through them, they were just straight forgeries, just flat out forgeries. Um, so, you know, we really thought we could set it and forget it and really put too much trust in these people. But we should have been calling. The, it was our fault. We should have called the county to verify these things. We should have asked for more the original certificates of occupancy. We should have dug into, hey, can I see the permits that were pulled? You know, we needed to be more hands on than we knew that we should have been or needed to be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I at the end of the day, we ended up firing the guy, getting somebody new in there who thankfully was just a rock star. Um, but in the end, it put us behind, you know, on a $600,000 CapEx budget, probably 250, 300 grand, you know, yeah. 50% of it. So, you know, and, and I think, I think people can learn from this because everybody at the end of the day wants to be in the same shoes as far as not on the bad end of the side here, but in the yeah. aspect of being more hands-off and like set it, forget yeah. it to a certain degree. Now, when it comes down to hiring somebody on still on your team, team internally that yeah. can manage and oversee and, and calling. And so you don't need to, right? Do all mm -hmm. the, the legwork, the babysitting, I call it for like yeah. the team, the yep. construction and everything, and then yep. report back to you. And you're just having those meetings with them to say, hey, oversee these things, verify this stuff, make sure it's done. Another thing that I'm a big advocate on is pay with credit. Pay with credit so much for the simple <laughs> fact that it gives you that protection. If they do, even if they charge you fees, the the processing fees, two, three percent, try to yeah. negotiate that, right? Sales, yeah. negotiate, I'm splitting it, whatever. That's your insurance plan. Because if they don't do the work, you can just call up and say, hey, they didn't do the work. And now yeah. it's before and after pictures and scope of work and they have to defend themselves, right? Yeah. Instead, it's like you guys saw the red flags and unfortunately you felt vulnerable because you couldn't you couldn't, you know, piss them off in any way or else you were scared that they were going to run off with the capital, right? Right. And again, you know, all things that that I wish I knew and one of my biggest fears is that cuz I love what you said, hey, you can have this team oversee, you're kind of overseeing the overseer, but to the retail investor, they don't have that. They don't have it. And they don't yeah. think they need it and and they nope. shouldn't need it. If you're going to go buy a single family home or a duplex, nah. You, you don't have that capacity and you shouldn't have to have that capacity. So yeah, you got to do that yourself. Yeah, Right. And so my biggest fear for people and the reason why I, I love talking to investors and I'm always talking about what are the passive strategies? If, if you want to be a passive investor, look at the passive ways to do it. Because my biggest fear for you is that you go into this, you find a great deal. You say, perfect, man, the contractor will do this. The manager will do this. I'm a, a mailbox moneying this thing. You know, very rarely does that happen. And if it does happen, or you are going to build out a significant team to, to put those checks and balances in place, it sucks out all your yield. I mean, you're kind of left with nothing. Your whole team gets paid first. So, you know, I, I love talking about this journey of like, hey, if you want to be passive, be passive. If you love real estate, great, go after it and do it. But don't be, 
a high-performing sales guy who works 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and then say, I'm going to buy a property as a passive investment because you're going to have to put in work. Yeah. And, and I also like, uh, you know, for good um, understanding and prefaces of this, it's like the last five, seven years, everybody's been making money. All right. It, it's been going like this the whole time. So yeah. yes, yes, yes. Like it's easy to to invest in any type of syndication or whatever it may be and mm-hmm. crush it, you know, and not do anything being that, being that passive investor during down markets. It is some of the most incredible times ever. That's where all the, the most, the billionaires, that's where they've made all of their money. So yeah. success leaves clues. There's opportunities there by all means at every stretch of the imagination. But there's also people that are going, a majority of people that are uneducated, unprepared, and um, making poor decisions from what they were used to the last seven, 10 years, yeah. that therefore they are missing out on like the home runs, the, the slam dunks, the, the billion dollar next thing. So be careful by all means, be more you know, you don't need to be too aggressive in what type of market we're in and where we're potentially going. Because just like you mentioned, instead of six deals per year, I am totally cool. I'm content and happy as hell. If we get one, that's amazing deal that I know wholeheartedly we can focus on and, and crush it with. Right. So I think, I think that's a big thing for listeners to really soak in and acknowledge instead of feeling like, Oh, I got to rush. There's so much opportunity. I see a lot of Amazing opportunities coming across my desk daily now, yeah. especially the last six months, but, but just be careful with it for sure. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to the syndication model as well is because you're using everybody's strengths. If your yeah. strength is not in operating real estate, do not go and, and try your best to operate a 40, yeah. 50, 60, 100 unit property. You know, it is not easy. It has been easy and you might luck out and you might get an easy one, but chances are you won't. So leverage the knowledge, experience, and and sweat equity of others who have been there, done that, have great solid track records of doing it, and continue to do what you do best. Be a great salesperson, be a great consultant, be a great doctor, and put your money to work with people by leveraging their experience. So yeah, I think it's it's great. And and people really need to understand like truly what are the methods and what what kind of investment strategy can I use my strengths as an investor and, and leverage those strengths. Love it. Well, Justin, this was an incredible episode. I, I have like a ton of notes here. I'm, I know I journaled a bunch here, but anybody out there trying to get a hold of you and connect a little bit more, do you mind just plugging your, your info of how people can yeah. get a hold of you? Yeah. So there's one way that I'm going to direct everybody to, if you're interested in investing passively or just learning about passive investments, I have an ebook for you. It's called The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. It's at thedefinitiveguidebook.com. And as a bonus, if you download it, I actually do this thing now where I sit down and I will make you a custom video just myself, like a video intro. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, you know, do that. You'll have all my information. I'll send you a custom video message and we connect there. And then there'll be links to all my websites, all my socials, everything. But it's thedefinitiveguidebook.com. And that's going to be the best resource for you. Cool. Love it. And then guys, if you know, by all means, you should definitely reach out to Justin and just network, have fun and see how you guys can best serve each other. By all means, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It is Brandon Elliott Investments, otherwise Facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. If you have not already subscribed to Ready, Set, Go Real Estate Investing Podcast, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button. It's Ready, Set, Go REI Podcast. You'll get the newest notification every single Monday. Leave that five-star review. Greatly appreciate all the love and feedback as always. 
and share this out. Sharing is caring. You know that. And as always, if you guys are looking to truly get educated on credit, understanding how the banks, lenders, and creditors are judging you, and really being able to get up to $500,000, I'm talking a big stack of these bad boys, 30, 40, 50 plus credit cards in the next 30 to 90 days, that's 0% interest. Every six months, we can teach you these techniques, remove all the negative stuff, travel hack as a caveat, and actually purchasing real estate to grow your portfolio and grow your business with credit. Then reach out to us at creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com. There is a 10, 15 minute video on there that will explain a little bit more juicy details. And then afterwards, you can just have a conversation with us, either myself or someone on Credit Council Elite team to be able to go over more of your situation, learn about what we got going on, how we're serving people and see how we can set you up with a game plan moving forward in the near future. So make sure you do that. It's www.creditcounselelite.com. We'll see you on the very next episode. Till next time, guys, God bless. And Justin, you're the man. Appreciate it, bro. Thank you. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit brandonelliottinvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.